Open your Bibles with me, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and let us consider the first half of this chapter this morning and what the Apostle has to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this morning read from Acts chapter 4, where a changed Peter stood up and addressed all the elders and rulers of Israel and told them of the power that was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We have read this morning Psalm 63, where David followed hard after the Lord himself, and he considered God his God, and he described the marrow and fatness that could satisfy his soul by meditating and remembering upon the Lord during the night. We want to see the Apostle Paul in this chapter describe to us the true pursuit of godliness and the Lord Jesus Christ. I wrote in your preparatory email yesterday about this sermon, and I want to say again, I believe it's one of the more spiritual chapters in the Bible, and I want to define myself. All chapters of the Bible are spiritual because God the Holy Spirit wrote them. But this chapter has the Apostle Paul giving his personal testimony, not only of what he thought of his past religion among the Jews, but what he thought of his present activities in following Jesus Christ. And it's very spiritually minded because this was a good church. There's little in the way of rebuke in this chapter. It's exhortation for them to follow his example and to press hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter provides the main exhortation of the book of Philippians. Chapter 1 was... Paul comforting them about being in prison and that God was able to work his sovereign will even with them in prison, even to the conversion of some of Caesar's household. Chapter 2 was the lesson of unity in the church and he used Jesus Christ as a great example of it. And then he spent the second half of that chapter talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Here we have an exhortation in this chapter about following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ and not letting the things of this life distract us as we just sang a few minutes ago. When we get down to the last part of this chapter this evening, we see in verses 18 and 19 a horrible indictment of many that call themselves Christians, but who mind earthly things. And in the language of God's ministers, they're belly worshipers. You know, that term may not be too popular today, and... Rick Warren may not be using it, but apostles use such language to describe those as the enemies of Christ who claim to be Christians and yet who minded earthly things. This chapter develops from verse 1 to verse 21 in a progression of Paul away from Jewish legalism and then away from dead Christianity toward a living, vibrant Christianity. It's a progression. The first half that we'll deal with this morning, ending at verse 11, deals with Paul turning his back on everything he had ever done Jewish-wise. And then he turns his back on everything done from a carnal Christian standpoint and presses toward the mark of holy Christian living in the second half of the chapter. Let's go to this first verse, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, and get the first sentence. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. Now that is a strange location for the word finally to put it in the middle of your epistle. You would think that the man was going to end his sermon shortly because he said, I'm about to my last point. 
But you've learned better than that here. And so you can understand the Apostle Paul. When he said finally, it's because he's introducing the main thrust of his epistle. And there's, he's not going to waste any more time as he presents chapter 3. And then he closes out chapter 4 with some nice things to some individuals there. And thanking the church for their gifts. But this is the main lesson right here. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. There were reasons why the Philippians weren't rejoicing all that much. Paul was in prison, and Epaphroditus, their beloved, one of their beloved bishops, was with Paul and had been very sick, yea, nigh unto death. Right. We just read in chapter 2. So there's that in mind, but there's also in mind what Paul is about to teach them. And that is the absolute bedrock that we have to meet a holy God in the day of judgment with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many reasons for them to rejoice. So he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. But we ought to be able to learn something from that little prepositional phrase describing joy, modifying joy, in the Lord. Isn't that what we read in Psalm 63? I will rejoice as with all marrow and fatness when I remember thee in my bed and and meditate upon thee in the night watches. True joy, true joy, true happiness can only be had one place, one way, in the Lord. In the Lord. To the degree you get your hope, your confidence, your investment, your time elsewhere than the Lord, you sacrifice your own joy. It's your fault. It's not God's fault. Circumstances have nothing to do with it. Because a man in horrible circumstances can still have, can still remember God in the night and meditate upon Him in the night watches and be full of joy. Paul and Silas proved it this very church, didn't they? In Acts chapter 16, they were in prison at midnight, and they sang and praised God. And all the prisoners heard them. They weren't whispering to each other, were they? They weren't ashamed of their joy in the Lord. The prisoners heard them. It was ringing through that dungeon in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord, because that's where joy is. I can't belabor the point, because I'm going to belabor the point when I get to verse 4 of chapter 4 where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I'm not going to belabor it now, but I want to tell you a secret of life. People pay lots of money, and they spend lots of time, and they put forth a lot of energy to find happiness. Real happiness is found by pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing Him, trusting Him, believing Him, learning about Him, singing about Him, Praying to Him. Talking about Him to others. That is true joy. To the degree you let those things slip, you will always be unhappy, no matter how long you live, nor nor what circumstances you have in life. Because they will all be superficial. They'll be empty. You know, the world makes such a big deal about Christmas. But do you know when most suicides occur? What month of the year? January. Because Christmas was such a huge letdown. They, you know, they read the paper for the last four months of the year, 109 days till Christmas. And oh, they're just getting themselves worked up. Mommy is so worked up 
that her family is going to be this wonderfully happy family sitting around the Christmas tree with the lights turned out and a little twinkle. And the thermostat turned up so that they all feel warm and fuzzy. And the kids are hating each other, fighting, poking, pushing each other. The presents are open. They rip the wrapping off, greedily break the toys. And Mama wants to go hang herself because she just invested a third of the year in pursuing utter vanity. Now, even a, even a natural man can see the vanity of that. That's why men get so excited when they hear the truth about Christmas, because they've seen through the vanity, because they don't have that little pitter-patter of a heart inside that thinks that that's meaningful to sit around an evergreen tree in your living room. Amen. Now, why did I say all that? Because true joy only comes from your knowledge of God and your pursuit of Him. You cannot create it any other way. And young people, don't try to pursue it any other place. Go back and look through the words of the songs we've sung this morning. Jesus is all I wish or want. And read the verses of that song. That's that's your only joy. It's a secret. And now it's out of the bag. So it's no longer a secret. You all know it. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. But for you it is safe. You know, a minister, when he's preparing to preach, what goes through his mind often, it's a monster. It's chasing him with a big club. You better come up with something new and exciting for those people, or they're going to fire you. You better come up with something new and exciting for those people because they're sick of hearing the same old thing. I love the apostle, my apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle that ordained Timothy and told Timothy to ordain me. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. It does not grieve me to repeat myself. You know, the Greeks would pride themselves on oratorical ability and creative preparation where they wouldn't repeat themselves. But the apostle Paul came along and just repeated himself often. Can you believe that we have to have the book of Ephesians and Colossians in our Bibles? Now, if I was an English teacher, I would put redundant all over Colossians. Because if you've read Ephesians, you don't need Colossians. I speak as... Please understand me. I speak as a fool. Because Colossians is so much like Ephesians. There's need for repetition. It didn't grieve Paul to do it. It's not going to grieve me to do it. And for you, it is safe. For you, it is safe to be constantly reminded of what is important. And the first lesson here is going to be... Put your hand up and stop and beware of any efforts by Jewish legalists to undermine your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The second half will be, put your hand up and beware of anyone that does not live a sold-out life for the Lord Jesus Christ. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, just to see the opinion of our brother Peter on the same subject of repetition. Second right. Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 is where, beginning at verse 5, the apostle lists eight things that if you have them in your life, you can know you're one of God's elect. Every one of us should be wanting to make sure that we're one of God's elect. Right. And Peter tells us exactly how to do it. Are these things in you, and are they abounding in you? But then he comes to verse 12, and he says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent 
to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Now, I'm thankful for a verse like that. I will not be negligent. What is true negligence? Not coming up with something new? No, negligence, according to Peter, is not reminding you of things you already know and be established in. Because it is easy to slip away from the fact that there are eight things that we ought to have abounding in our lives to prove that we are the true children of God. And he says, I'm going to always be reminding you in these things. Look at verse 13. Yea, I think it meet, appropriate, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I'm about to die. But before I die, I'm going to keep on doing the same thing I've been doing, and that's reminding you of things so that when I do die and put off this tabernacle, I've preached about that before, you'll have these things in remembrance. That there are eight things that ought to prove a child of God. I love the Word of God. Listen, I am so angry and sick of this decisional salvation that the world believes in, that as long as you believed in Jesus in some momentary act of faith and made a decision for Jesus, invited him into your heart and wrote the date down, you're saved. You see, I don't ever, I can't find that in the Bible. Instead, I find Peter, one of Jesus Christ's favorite apostles, saying, as long as I am alive, I will not be comforting you with your decision that you made for Jesus, but I will be pressing you to bring forth those eight things that prove you're a child of God. What a difference. What a difference. Why didn't Peter just say, once saved, always saved, and let's talk about some neat stuff? I met a soccer player when I was traveling who believes on Jesus. You want to hear his testimony? And so we'd have two or three chapters of a testimony by some Babylonian soccer player. You say, Babel? Yes, that's where Peter was. Back to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul said to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. You say it is safe. Okay, here we go. Here's what he was going to write to them. Here's, these are things he'd already taught them when he was there in person, but he's reminding them again to write the same things. Not that he wrote two epistles that looked just like each other, but that when he was there he preached these things and now he's writing them again. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, he uses three different warnings here. Beware of dogs. Now, in the Bible, what's a dog? Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. A sodomite's a dog. For any of you listening by tape, go look it up. Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. Thou shalt not bring the price of a dog into the house of God. And it goes on to describe the dog as being a sodomite. Now, you can't find that in any dictionary of the English language because the Word of God is superior to even the Oxford English Dictionary. When God chose to use a word, there's a reason He chose it, and I'll spare you right now. I usually have trouble sparing you, but I'll spare you. You can ask me later why God would call them dogs. But there's a reason. Sodomites are dogs in the Word of God. It's not the gay lifestyle. It's the doggy lifestyle. Now are you getting my drift? Beware of dogs, but that's not what he means here. I have to let the context override 
that use of dog in Deuteronomy 23 to think about what's Paul going to argue against in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. He's going to argue against Jewish legalists who were coming out of Jerusalem and opposing the work of the apostles in preaching that salvation was entirely based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses three terms to describe them. One, dog, to describe their character. Because in the Bible, no matter how much you think that your dog is a gentle, tender, delicate, thinking creature, in the Bible, they are the most despicable of all the animals God made, along with the pig. Dogs and pigs. This is the word of the Lord. And so he uses the word dog, because dogs in the Bible are known for being cruel and profane and eating their own vomit. Because they're fools that leave their vomit for a while and then go back to it. And we're going to run into them in verses 18 and 19. Who mind earthly things. Who took the name of Christ, but then they end up going back into earthly things. So he uses the word dog. And dog in the Bible is used to describe a profane animal that doesn't have a conscience, that is cruel, and goes and eats its own vomit. Just a vile creature. Beware of dogs. There are some vile men that are cruel, that are out opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be on your guard against them. Second, he says, beware of evil workers. Their intent is to sow evil in the churches of Jesus Christ. It is not to uplift us in holiness. It is not to build the churches in righteousness, but to sow evil. They're evil men, and their ambitions are evil. I preached a couple of messages to you from Second Peter chapter 2 that described false prophets in terms that would fit evil workers. Horrible men, denying authority, resenting authority, speaking of things that they don't know, eyes full of adultery, cannot cease from sin, and a number of descriptive phrases that we studied in that place. Second Peter chapter 2. These are the evil workers that were a threat to Philippi. Now, Philippi wasn't infected with them like Corinth was, like the churches of Galatia were. But Paul's warning them, beware of them. Beware of the concision. Now, this is the apostle, and he's not using very good pulpit manner. Because the word concision is not a nice word to speak about Jews. But the word here tells us that he is speaking about Jews, and the next verse tells us that he is speaking about Jews. And so I am a servant to context. I am sorry about that if that means that I won't come up with some very exciting things sometimes by making something up from a verse. But I let context drive me. And so verse 2 is dictated by what 3 through 11 tell me. I'm dealing with Jewish enemies of the gospel. They're called dogs for their character. They're called evil workers for their ambitions and effects. And they're called the concision for the thing they valued most. Circumcision. Circum. What do you think circumnavigation or circum anything means? In a circle. What do you think circumcision means? Scission means to cut. So it means to cut in a circle. And everyone able to understand those words understands everything I need for you to understand right now. Don't you? Okay, we know what circumcision means. But then we get, and the Jews reveled in it. Because God gave it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 as a sign of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and his seed. 
But we've got the word concision. And all that means is cuttings. Cuttings. Now, the Word of God has something to say about cuttings. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, and a couple of other places, for religious purposes, any cuttings were an abomination to God. And so Paul calls these worshipers of circumcision the concision. All they are is body mutilators. They're body piercers. They're body cutters. So here's the apostle. I know, I know, you would rather have a refined, dignified, urbane, suave, debonair, smooth, cultured pastor. But listen, I want to be like the Apostle Paul, and he calls the circumcision the concision. And I want to tell you, for a Jew reading that, that worships circumcision, that was a kidney punch. That was a kidney punch. But the Apostle Paul didn't back off. He said, beware of dogs. Dogs is a kidney punch, too. I mean, when you consider how the Bible uses that word, and then beware of evil workers, and all he's talking about are Jewish preachers coming out of Jerusalem. Because remember, in Acts 15, certain Jews, Pharisees that had been converted, came out of Jerusalem saying, except a man be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, cannot be saved. And so this this was a constant threat to the churches of the New Testament. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision ridiculing their worship of circumcision. Then look what Paul says. For we are the circumcision. Now, where is he? Is he in Bethlehem? Capernaum? Nazareth? Jerusalem? Where is he? Where is he writing? Philippi. He's writing what kind of people? Gentiles. Greeks. Did Greeks know what circumcision meant? Did they practice it? No. No. Look what he says. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision of God. When God looks down on this planet, he does not look for that outward circumcision. He looks for an inward one. And those are his people. Look in your Bibles at uh, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now, Brother John Fisher, get a load of this. This is the true circumcision. Verse 28, Romans 2.28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Amen. Now, that takes some thought. For he is not a Jew whose birth certificate says he's a Jew. For he is not a Jew which is a citizen of the nation of Israel. For he is not a Jew, which had a surgical operation on his eighth day. For he is not a Jew, that is one outwardly. By whatever measure you want to make it, a birth certificate that can trace itself or a genealogy back to Abraham, he is not a Jew. That is not the definition of a Jew in God's opinion or the Apostle Paul's opinion, who was a Jew. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. If you were a physical Jew, you had your parents to praise and the doctor to praise. 
If you're a Christian, you have God to praise. Because he cut off the sins of your heart and regenerated you. And so you're a Jew on the inside, which is where God looks. The true Jew in the mind of God is a regenerate child of God of either Jew or Gentile. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. He says, beware of the concision. These Jewish converts, not, not fully converted, coming to Philippi and preaching, you had to be circumcised to be saved. And see, the Greeks weren't. Do you know how pain, difficult that would be? You're a Greek convert. You don't have the New Testament yet. You have the Old Testament. And you have a concordance for the Old Testament. You're sitting there, and some illustrious man from Jerusalem comes into your assembly and preaches that you need to be circumcised to be saved. You go home and grab your concordance, and what do you find? God requiring circumcision throughout the Old Testament. Would there be a temptation for you to go see the doctor on Monday morning? Beware of the concision. Don't let those body cutters bother you. Do you understand the force of the, the verse now? Amen. And here's the explanation. I've given, you, I've given you Philippians verse 3 of chapter 3. I've given you Romans 2, 28 and 29. There's many more. But let's look at this one. Colossians 2 and verse 10. And ye are complete in him. I preach that to you and emphasize that phrase Amen. about 30 times. And ye are complete in him. Because in Christ Jesus, we are totally complete and fit, ready to meet God, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Trust me, hands get involved in circumcision that's made outward in the flesh. But this is circumcision not involving hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was cut off out of the land of the living. And when he did that with our sins on him, he took our sins away and they were cut off. We are then born again. And they're cut off in the act of regeneration when we're given a new nature. Created in righteousness and true holiness. That's a circumcision made without hands because it's done by the Lord of heaven. And that's the circumcision that counts. A changed heart. A new creature a regenerated child of God, being born again, adopted into the family of God. That's what counts, not your national lineage. When Jesus met men who said, we're the children of Abraham, he said, no, you're not. You're the children of the devil. If you had any connection to Abraham, you would love me. But because you don't have any connection to Abraham that counts, you want to kill me. That's John chapter 8. The same Lord Jesus Christ said in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, anybody that worships in a synagogue is a worshiper of the devil. Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. I know them that say they are Jews and are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. Because they were Jews claiming by national descent from Abraham to be the children of God. But the true children of God are those that are born again Elect children of God. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Was there still a physical distinction between Jews and Gentiles? Yes. Did Je was Jesus Christ a minister of the circumcision? Yes. Was Paul a minister to the uncircumcision? Yes. 
So there was still a distinction being made between them two, between the two, but as far as our relationship to God, it was gone. It was obliterated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Right. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Paul is saying, I know that when you look around, it appears that hardly anyone has believed the gospel. Well, it's not as bad as you think, Paul said. It's not as bad as you think. It's not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. They are not all elect spiritual Israel that are physical Israelites. So if you take the, if you take the whole body of Israel, and let's say it was 10 million people at that time, and you shrink it down to 3 million people that might have been elect Israel, then if you compared the results of who believed the gospel to that smaller number, it didn't appear quite so bad. That's the point of Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Verse 7 says, Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Physical descendants of Abraham, Jews outwardly, Jews with a birth certificate, were not the children of God. That didn't prove anything. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The children of the promise, God's promised elect that he would have, are the true seed. Because Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. But it was only the son by promise that counted in the sight of God. And even though Abraham begged God to have mercy on Ishmael and make him great, God made him great in a very limited, carnal, worldly, material sense. But he blessed Isaac because Jesus Christ would come through Isaac. Back to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision. You Philippian Gentile Christians, don't be moved, don't be discouraged, don't be distracted by these preachers coming and telling you you need to be circumcised because you're already circumcised by what Jesus Christ has done for you in dying for you, taking your sins away. That's the extra flesh being cut off. And in cutting off your sin nature by giving you a new one in the act of regeneration. Because a true Jew is one inwardly. In the spirit, not in the letter of the law. That's verse 3. We are the circumcision. And notice who he's saying. We, Gentiles, Greeks. We are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit. Because remember, Jesus Christ told the woman of Samaria, God seeks those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. An inwardly form of worship directed toward God not outward in the flesh by temple ceremonial laws. But in the Spirit. We worship God in the Spirit. We may not be in Jerusalem. We may not be at the temple. We may not be offering animal sacrifices. But we're worshiping God in the Spirit. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus alone and have no confidence in the flesh. That is a true Jew. Someone who has no confidence in his national descent at all rejoices in Christ Jesus and worships God in spirit, not by Old Testament letter. And you know what? That's what we're doing today. Amen. Here we are today, trying to worship God in spirit without much letter, because there's not, much, there's not much pretty about this meeting place, nor about the format of our services. But we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, If any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day 
of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Here's Paul's testimony. He's telling these Philippians, if some man comes out of Jerusalem or Judea and preaches to you that you need to keep the law of Moses or be circumcised, and they're putting their trust in the flesh, those outward rituals of Judaism, if they think they can trust in the flesh, I have more. This, this is so powerful. He first of all gives them the argument, and then he tells them, listen, if you're moved by any of these men who think that they have something to boast of in the flesh, I've got more. Talk about circumcision. I wasn't circumcised when I was 30 years old like a proselyte. I was circumcised the eighth day. I wasn't circumcised the seventh day or the ninth day. I fulfilled the commandment exactly. Let me chase a rabbit for 30 seconds. This is a proof that the Bible is the word of God. Genesis chapter 17, written about 2500 B.C. to Abraham. It tells us that circumcision ought to take place on the eighth day. It is not until the eighth day that prothrombin and vitamin K are produced by the liver and the, diget and the intestinal tract to boost the blood clotting principles in a baby to 110% of normal so that circumcision can take place and the baby not hemorrhage. Praise his glorious name. I said that was just a short little rabbit trail. You know, I love science when it comes along and confirms the word of God. If it doesn't confirm the word of God, there's a silver lever for it. Right. Amen. Because it's not science. You know what Paul would call any science that doesn't confirm? Brother Bob, you're hurting me. Do you know what Paul calls any science that doesn't confirm the word of God? Babblings and science falsely so-called. I love that one. You know, a woman's milk doesn't come in until about the second or the third day. As soon as that baby starts getting milk in its digestive system, bacteria sets in. Bacteria creates prothrombin and vitamin K. And those two are anti, uh, they're, they're blood clotting compounds in the body. And so that by the eighth day, 110% of normal of being able to resist blood flow. And that's when the Lord said, eighth day. Well, that was just a little sidelight. That's not what he was teaching in Philippians chapter 3. I just want to tell you that because I believe every single word. And you know when it says the eighth day, if we'd have been a hundred years ago, I wouldn't have given you that rabbit trail because I wouldn't have known there was such a thing called prothrombin or vitamin K. But now they've proven that and it's wonderful. And I love to, I want to just glory in the blessed God who wrote us a book. We have a secret book that has absolute truth in every word. And every time he shows us some more truth in an individual word, because he reveals a little bit more to the human race, I want to proclaim the glory of his name. Amen. Circumcised the eighth day. You know, the, I don't need to go through these points here, because I preached it recently in 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, and 12. But the Apostle Paul had everything that a Jew could ever want. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was not the result of a bunch of mongreling of our Jewish race. I came from the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Is Benjamin a good tribe? Who was the beloved of his father? Who was the most beloved son of Jacob? You say, well, it's a fight between Joseph and Benjamin. Son of his old age was Benjamin. Which tribe went with Judah and didn't follow the other ten? It was Benjamin. 
There's more that can be said about that, but Paul's, when Paul pulls up Benjamin, that is a great tribe because you know what? The other ten, you'd be hard-pressed to prove you were from them because the other ten were taken captive and, and mongrelized quite a bit among the Assyrians and others where they were left captive for a long time. Paul's bringing all, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Do you know how Hebrew Paul was? Paul had a Hebrew mommy and Paul had a Hebrew daddy. And do you know what Paul could speak right fluently? Hebrew. When he got to Acts chapter 22 and he stood in the steps and he addressed them in the Hebrew tongue, what did that whole Jewish nation do that wanted to strangle him? They got quiet because they heard music to their ears. They, they didn't hear Latin coming out of those Romans. They didn't hear Greek coming out of the ones that had been to school. They heard Hebrew that had been taught in the home. They heard fluent Hebrew and they shut up even though they wanted to kill Paul. He's just bringing all these credentials up showing you his great resume so that if you were a Philippian Gentile being threatened by these Judaizers, a Judaizer is someone coming from Jerusalem or present there in Philippi that wants you to go back and act like a Jew. They can remember that Paul, Paul has a better resume than that guy has. And Paul said, no, to it all. Concerning, as touching the law, I was a Pharisee. The Bible tells us very plainly that was the most conservative sect of the Jews' religion. That was the most conservative denomination. As a Pharisee, who taught him? I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was taught by Gamaliel. When Gamaliel stood up in Jewish courts in the first five chapters of Acts, did they listen when he spoke? They listened. He had it all. Did God prepare Paul to write Philippians? Indeed, he did. Did he prepare Paul to write Hebrews? Indeed, he did. Don't... God prepared the men that wrote the Word of God. The best man to have written against the Judaizers was the Apostle Paul. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Do you know how zealous I was for the Jews' religion that I just listed? I chased people that believe the way I do now. I chased them down and threw them in prison or killed them. Persecuting the church. That's how committed I was to the cause of Judaism. Concerning the righteousness that is of the law that God gave us Israelites and Jews, blameless, as interpreted by the Pharisees, of course. I kept every rule that the Pharisees had, the most conservative denomination of our religion, I kept every bit of it. And so he's listing all these qualifications to make him quite an expert in Jewishness. And then he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me? Those I counted lost for Christ. I gave them all up. This great resume that I've just given you meant nothing to me that I might follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody could have competed with that little testimony and conclusion. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless. Yea, doubtless. Without a doubt. Don't question this. This is absolute and certain truth. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, 
if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul is now going to tell them, in one long sentence, the means that he understood and believed and practiced of laying hold on the resurrection of the dead. There were men coming out of Jerusalem saying, you had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to obtain the resurrection of the dead and go to heaven. The Apostle Paul is now going to tell them, I had the most qualifications on that basis that any man has had. I more. If any man could glory in the flesh, I more. But now he says, I'm going to show you the means by which I lay hold of the resurrection. And they're casting all those things away as dung and laying hold of Jesus Christ that I might be found in him, bearing his righteousness, just as we sang a few minutes ago from number 203 in our hymnals, the solid rock, that when, we, when Jesus Christ appears, we may be found dressed alone in his righteousness. That is the main lesson of verses 8 through 11. Verses 12 and on are going to contrast him with carnal Christian living. 8 through 11 is primarily contrasting his choices with those that took confidence in being Jews. Very quickly. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things. Now, verse 7, he says, I counted laws. There was a point in Paul's life in the past where he had to face a choice. I follow Christ or I follow the Jews because the two were incompatible. And I, I counted all these things laws in order to follow Jesus Christ. My life has been changed since I chose Jesus Christ and to follow him because that choice rejects any confidence in the flesh or Jewishness. That was verse 7. But notice verse 8. He's moving into the present tense. Yea, doubtless. And I count. Not counted. But I count. All things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Not only was that, that resume all pushed aside, but any confidence that he would have, that he was safe in the sight of God, he gave it all up. Anything. Not his activities as an apostle. Not his ability to speak tongues. Not his miracle performing power. Nothing. He's presently counting everything but loss. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Anything that gets in my way for knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, I count it a loss. It's nothing to me in comparison. Because that is my goal. And notice what he calls that knowledge of Christ Jesus. The excellency. Amen. The excellency. Isn't this the man that wrote in chapter 1 that we might know those things that are excellent? There is nothing as excellent as the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Not even his word. Though what does his word do? It testifies of him. So it's all Christ-centered. The, the most excellent thing in the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a secret, though. There is in you and in me, and there is in this world, and there is in the devil, a violent hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, focused on him, is the hardest thing for you to truly learn to love and to stay focused on. You will slip away from the Lord Jesus Christ faster than any other thing. You can memorize scripture. The devil don't care if you memorize scripture. Just as long as you aren't loving the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to warn you about that. And you know what Paul said? Everything gets counted as loss because I am pursuing one great goal. And I hate to talk to you like this. I wish that I could tell you that every single day of my life, the mercury blows out the top of my thermometer in loving the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what I have to do? I have to beg God to bring a blowtorch to get it out of the little puddle at the bottom. Are you all with me on that? I wish it wasn't so. I hate it. I tell, I've told him more times than probably all of you combined, remember my frame, because I don't know what other excuse to use, that I'm dust. How can I read this chapter and measure myself by it? How can you? We're inferior to this chapter, but this is why it's written. This is what Paul taught when he was there, and this is what he wrote when he had a chance to write an epistle to a church that had just sent him a financial gift. He said, thank you very much for the money. And love Jesus Christ. Because that is the key to our lives. And we will never be happy without putting Jesus Christ first. You will not have the assurance of salvation without Jesus Christ first. When Jesus Christ is first in your life, you could ask for the big one. No disrespect, Brother Bob. You You could ask for a heart attack. Because you're so filled with assurance because you're in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only mediator between God and men. He'll see you right into the presence of God. The key to our lives is right here what the Apostle is first of all telling us is superior to Judaism. Then he's going to tell us it's superior to this lackadaisical, earthly-minded type of Christianity. One sentence. Yea, doubtless. Look, Listen to his confidence. There is no mixing or mongrelizing of these two things. I don't mix Judaism with Christianity. I'm not confused about this matter. I'm not doubting it. I'm not telling you something I think is a good idea. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know the Lord Jesus Christ. To know the facts about Him that are revealed in the Bible. To know the personal character of Him. To know what He's done for us. To know what he's done for us so experimentally and so personally that we do the same things for him. To know him. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. What's a great man to you? I've done this before a couple of times. A couple of my favorite sermons. I can preach it. I wish I always felt it. I hate being able to preach it and not always feel it. And I don't talk about foolish emotional feelings, but the love of Christ flowing out of my heart. What do you want to measure a great man by? Come on, give me something. Give me something, I'll crush you with the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Give me something. Is it strength? Oh, strength. What strength do you want to consider? His personal strength under the torment of the Garden of Gethsemane? His strength of being able to call sick 12 legions of angels to come and destroy the world and to set him free? What strength do you want? The strength to resist women for 33 and a half years of his life when they all would have found him to be the most desirable man that ever walked this earth? What strength do you want to talk about? I'll show you someone that's strong. He created the worlds out of nothing by the word of his mouth. Right. When he spoke a word, devils departed and men trembled. And men said, what a word is this? Exclamation point. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about love? 
I'll show you love that will never forsake you, never leave you, and cannot be measured. It's love that has no height, depth, length, or breadth. It's love that was set on you when you were unlovely. It's love that has never varied one moment of time. Is it love that you want to measure a man? But do you know what? We forget the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet little girls and little boys will get wrapped up. Boys will get wrapped up in a hero. Little girls will get wrapped up in some guy. And he can't measure up to the Lord Jesus Christ by any measure. Right. And we forget the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to talk about money? I think my Jesus Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Amen. And all the treasures of the earth and heaven and the sea and all that in them is. We are a disgrace. But the Lord is merciful. And we come together for assemblies like this to be reminded of putting the Lord Jesus Christ first. Did you love singing number 527 a few minutes ago, Jesus is all I wish or want? If you didn't love singing that song and there was something that was inside chafing against that song, it's because you have a spiritual problem. Because it has nothing to do with the tune at all. It has everything to do with the words. Yea, doubtless. I love the apostle. I can't say that I don't have a pattern, and you can't say that you don't have a pattern because there's a pattern. Yea, doubtless. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. What does it mean to win Christ? The next verse tells us it means to be found in him. It means to be so attached to him that you know when you stand before God, you will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to win his approval. It means to win his favor. It means to win his acceptance. You know, it's not us accepting Jesus. It's him accepting us. And it's to know that personally and experimentally in his heart. I want to cast aside everything and pursue the Lord Jesus Christ that I might lay hold of that eternal life that he's promised me I want to lay hold of it for my own assurance. I want to win Jesus Christ by winning his favor, his approval, his acceptance, and that I might win him and be found in him as he goes on to explain it. Remember, there's a contrast right here between trusting in the fleshly works of Judaism versus trusting Jesus Christ. That's the contrast being run in these verses. So when it says that I may win Christ, that is set in opposition to Suffering the loss of all things and counting them dung. All these Jewish things over here, all these earthly things are gone that I might win Christ. That I might pursue believing in Jesus Christ, obeying him, winning his favor, and being found in him with all my might. So that I don't get distracted by these things. It's the opposite of the loss is the win. I want to win that. I want to lose these things. I want to get that. I want to get rid of these. I want to obtain him and be found in him. I don't want these even spotting me. Verse 9, and be found in him. That's found in him by God Almighty. Found in him practically. Found in him legally. But how do you prove legally but, but by being in him practically? That I may be in him, found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. I was blameless in that once, but that's nothing. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. The faith of Christ. 
The faith of Christ. Now, if you're using a, King James, a new King James Bible, you're in trouble because it says faith in Christ. But your King James Bible says the faith of Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed for us. He was faithful for us. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. We are justified by the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in God. His own enemies knew that. They, when he was hanging on the cross, they said, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he delighted in him. They knew that Jesus Christ was a man of faith. And the Lord Jesus Christ was such a man of faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he asked for God if it could, was possible to give him another cup to bear, he took and drank that cup and drank the dregs of it for you and for me. Because his father asked him to do it, and he did that by faith. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. And he's justified us by his faith, and we lay hold of that righteousness secured by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We lay hold of that by our faith. Amen. And then we add to that faith virtue. You can't ever take one verse of the Bible and come up with some private interpretation. Right. You've got to remember every verse of the Bible in light of every other verse in the Bible. Yes, that's a lot of work. And he wrote it that way so that only his people would have the truth. Because he wrote the Bible that way so that the rest of them that don't really want the truth would not end up with the truth. And I said all of that to tell you what it means when we lay hold of righteousness by faith. Jesus Christ earned it by his faithful obedience. We lay hold of it by faith, by believing. But that believing has things added to it to show that it is true and sincere believing. And here the Apostle Paul is saying... I flushed everything that had to do with Judaism. I flushed everything that distracted me from pursuing the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I might be found in Him with His righteousness, not the righteousness I once trusted in that I had in the law, in which I was blameless. But I knew that that was a false righteousness created by men who had so modified the Word of God to excuse them, I wanted to be found in His righteousness alone. Verse 10, that I may know him. Wow. The loss of all things, count them all but dung, that I may know him. Didn't Paul know Jesus? Had Jesus appeared to Paul? Yep. Had Jesus taught Paul? Mm -hmm. Did Paul know more about Jesus Christ in some respects than any other apostle? Mm -hmm. According to Ephesians 3, yes, mm -hmm. that I might know him. He wanted to know him experimentally. That means to know him personally and in such a way that his life reflected his knowledge of Jesus Christ. It means know in, a, in, a, in an affectionate way, not just knowing facts. The devils know all the facts about Jesus. Didn't they proclaim them rather publicly and plainly? We know thee who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before our time? Are those all correct facts? Yes, that is not what it means to know him. It means to go beyond that and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him in such a way that His character becomes your character. It's to know someone experimentally, practically. Because look at His description of what it meant to know Him. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. What power was exerted in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? But the power that quickened you from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and quickened Him is the same power that causes us to believe the gospel. It changes lives. And the apostle said that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. That I may live a changed life. Do you know what we say when we're baptized? 
we say that we're going to rise to walk in newness of life. Because we're going to look just like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was alive, he died, was buried, and rose again, and rose right up into heaven. Did he have a different life after that he had before? We're supposed to have a different life afterward than we did before. That's to know him and the power of his resurrection. A changed life. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. A changed life. Colossians chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Didn't it tell us in chapter 1 that we, it, is, it has been given to us not only to believe on him but to suffer as well? The fellowship of his sufferings is to get involved in the sufferings of Jesus Christ so much by learning about them, by believing them, by laying hold of them and commiserating with what the Son of God did for us, that you do not mind suffering right along with him. The fellowship of his sufferings. That you do not mind suffering right along like Jesus Christ suffered when he was here on earth. And no man did it like the Apostle Paul. And you know what? He knew it in advance. How's that for an invitation when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, I have appeared to thee for this reason, to make thee a minister and to tell you that you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah, you can go read it. You can go read it in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. His three times he gave his testimony, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be one with the Lord Jesus Christ in suffering. If he could suffer and bear it and please God... I want to suffer and bear it and please God. Now you say, well, I don't really know what you're talking about because I'm not suffering. I'll help you right now. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us an example of Jesus' suffering. And do you know what it gives? It gives two illustrations. Submitting to government. Submitting to your boss. Right. And then it says, Jesus Christ gave us an example. Can you submit to your boss in a way that when he mistreats you, listen, when he gives you a raise, I don't care how you treat your boss. When he lies to you, when your boss lies to you, when your boss gives you the worst job that there is, and you know he could have given it to a lot of other people, but he gave it to you. When he promised you something and then didn't do it. When he has a pet and he gives that person a higher raise than he gave you, even though you outworked the other person. When he gives you hours you don't want. You know what? If you suffer, if you suffer being treated wrongfully for conscience sake toward God, you're just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he suffered wrongfully for conscience toward God his entire life. Now, when you pay your taxes, can you do it honestly? Can you submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake? Can you drive close to the speed limit or under it? You say, I don't want to drive close to the speed limit. Well, that means you're nothing like Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ submitted himself to all authority and the example of fellowship of his sufferings for you and me right now today is given in 1 Peter 2 as being those two things. Submitting yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake and submitting yourself to your boss when he's a froward boss and doesn't treat you right. Now it gets a little more practical, doesn't it? You wish we hadn't got to verse 10. The fellowship of his sufferings. See, if we were being hauled into prison and beaten 
then we could compare ourselves to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But since we're not, I decided to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, where if you will go read the passage, you will find out that Jesus Christ gave us an example in that context of obeying government and obeying bosses, being made conformable unto his death. I want to conform my life to the way Jesus Christ died. Did Jesus Christ say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done? That's being conformable to his death. Another way you can be conformable to his death is to cut off the world in your life. Being willing to die to this world, to live for God. I am crucified with Christ, as Galatians 2.20 tells us. Nevertheless, I live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's being conformable to his death. Dying to yourself in this world to live unto God. These are all statements of Paul's personal testimony. And he comes to verse 11 and says, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul wasn't in doubt of his resurrection of the dead. Paul knew that he had eternal life waiting for him. He tells us that over and over. Nothing can separate him from the love of God. He was sure that a crown was waiting for him, Second Timothy chapter 4. He was ready to be offered. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. Paul wasn't, there wasn't any doubt about it. Paul is using this kind of language to deal, then to make a very strong point. Instead of trusting all those other things for the resurrection of the dead, I've laid hold of the resurrection of the dead by all these means. These are the means I use, not those means. Those Jewish teachers that are coming and teaching you their means, I've just taught you the true means. And the means are the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, living like Him, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformable to His death. That's how we know that we have eternal life. And so the Apostle Paul said, Beware of dogs, evil workers, and the concision, because we're the true circumcision of God. And this is how we lay hold on eternal life. And he comes to verse 11, and that covers the first half of this chapter. And the second half of the chapter is him going to move on and say, now that I've, now that I've discarded my Judaism, I, don't, I haven't attained anything yet. I'm still working to attain by pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I don't want to be anything like those belly worshipers that mind earthly things. And so we'll finish out the chapter. You're going to walk out of here in a couple of minutes. You better walk out of here asking yourself, is the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord excellent to me? Is the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord so excellent to me that I would suffer the loss of all things? Is the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord so excellent that I would count anything in this life dung in comparison? If you're short of that, we're short of the goal of Philippians 3, 1 through 11. May the Lord help us and stir up our hearts by His grace to love His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.